And uh, also, I wanted just to point out that one of the things that we're going to be doing here is we're talking about how to um, grow in our ability when we're in, in prayer and grow in our ability when we've got our Bibles open. And what that supposes and what that presumes is that we all actually are, are reading our Bibles and we are meeting with the Lord on a consistent basis. So what I want to just put in front of all the guys again is that one of the objectives here is to grow in each one of us a desire and a willingness and a readiness to actually have a plan for how to expose ourselves to the full counsel of God's word. So um, what we do is we have several means available for us, whether it's um, uh, in the reading plans that we've got in the in your notebook there that you can be a part of, or if you can brew your own. But the idea here is that we are men who are are really convinced that what we really need is the full counsel of God's word, and we have some kind of plan for how to go about exposing ourselves to all of that. So I just want to encourage you guys, if you're on a plan, whether it's your own or whether it's one that we've we put in front of you, uh, stay on that plan. If you're not, uh, think really, really hard about how it is that you can expose yourself to, to truths in God's word that uh, are going to be found on pages that maybe you don't look at very often. And so some kind of plan that moves you through God's word uh, in some kind of timely fashion so that you get the full counsel of it is something we really want every one of us to embrace. All right, so in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is doing something that is really, really encouraging. He is putting in front of the believer uh, some really important things that relate to knowing Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses um, 7 through about 12 in this chapter. And he starts out by warning them of uh, the people that are around them who are the false circumcision. He starts by describing a group of people who have a wrong understanding of what the most important thing is. And Paul gets to what the most important thing is in verses 8 through 12. And we're going to spend our time and disciplines here in this passage this week. And then next time we get together, we're going to be looking at the very end of the chapter to just encourage us when we, we're going to be looking forward in time when we get to next time together. But here, let me read the passage and then I'll make a few observations and then just talk about how this can help us as we have our Bibles open and we're spending time in Bible reading and in prayer. So Paul is contrasting himself and his walk with the Lord with a legalistic view of the Christian faith. He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What Paul starts by describing is the things that he truly values in his life. And what he values is knowing Christ. We see that in verses 7 and 8, that all things amount to nothing apart from knowing Christ and pursuing Christ. 
And then he goes on and talks about how you can be found in Christ when you know Christ. You have the righteousness that God demands of someone who will spend eternity with him. So when we read our Bibles and when we pray, we are actually pursuing a relationship with Christ. And so one of the things that I've found to be really, really helpful when I sit down with my Bible and I sit down to spend time in Bible reading and in prayer is to remind myself that the reason I am there is first and foremost to glorify God. And I do that through pursuing a deeper and deeper relationship with Christ. And so Paul talks about some of these things here. And that it is so important for us to remember that when we're reading our Bibles, um, we are actually deepening and strengthening our purposes to deepen and strengthen our relationship with Christ. And as we, we do that, um, we are actually developing the relationship that God gave us with him. And what I, I want to point out in verse 12 is, is really, really helpful for us to just keep in mind. And that is, if you look at the very end of the verse, uh, Paul talks about that when he was laid hold of by Christ. He's talking about the work that Christ did in his place on a cross, the, the price that Christ paid to purchase him for, for eternity. And when the believer, when, when they spend the time pursuing Christ, and if you see in the middle there that Paul says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. Paul is talking about the pursuit that he has of Christ himself. So what the believer can be encouraged by is as they spend time in the word, they are demonstrating that they are the ones for whom Christ has laid hold of, the ones for whom Christ has died, because the believer is the one who actually pursues Christ and pursues him and presses on and perseveres until the very, very end in saving faith. So what I want to encourage you guys with today is that when you pursue Christ in the way that Paul is describing here, to know him and to spend time alone with him, what you're actually doing is you're proving that he has actually died for you and he is the one who actually has purchased you unto Christ, unto unto God himself. And so I just want to encourage you guys when you read your Bibles uh, to keep that in mind. That when you persevere in your pursuit of Christ, that is how you prove that you do belong to Christ and pursue him and and love him and know him. So uh, keep that in front of you. It's it's an encouraging passage when you actually sit down and and pursue Christ and you're actually the one who actually is knowing him more and more as you spend time alone with him. So whether you're at the beginning of your Bible or in the middle of your Bible or at the end of your Bible, um, whether you're reading in your New Testament or your Old Testament, what is in front of you at all times is the work that Christ has done to to uh, purchase your salvation. And when you read in the Old Testament what God has done in in Israel's history and how that points to Christ, um, you see that when you're in your New Testament, you're reading about the work of Christ. All of those things are very, very helpful to grow your relationship with Christ and in so doing prove that um, He is the one who purchased you unto Him. I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope that what that does is, is give you a heart to pursue the Lord faithfully, continuously, uh, whether it's in the morning or in the evening or some other time. Um, but it does motivate you to be faithful in your reading of the Word. And prayer. Lord God, thank you for this day and for an opportunity to meet together as men and to open up your Word together and to see a template that you put together in First Thessalonians about what... Um, Paul did with the gospel and how we can strive to emulate him, Lord. Thank you for these men and their desire to grow um, in the build disciplines, their desire to be a part of Grace Bible Church and, and just 
get closer to you by shepherding their hearts, Lord, so that their ministry can be fruitful. In your name, amen. For those of you that don't know me, um, my name's Matt. I'm one of the elders here at GBC. Um, it was probably three years ago. I was, um, I well, it was probably five or six years ago now that I took stole this ministry from Scott. Um, there. And... And then I was supposed to go to the church plant, so Scott wrestled it back from me, and then took it and wouldn't let go. Um, but this ministry is one of my favorite ministries at Grace Bible Church. I love um, these lessons. I love seeing men come into this ministry and just learn about what it means to um, to shepherd your heart. And there's three or four lessons in this ministry that are near and dear to my heart, and so I still get to teach those, and this is one of them. Um, This lesson's out of 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, I'll get there in a minute. Forgive me, um, I'm not feeling very well, so there will be a lot of times throughout this morning where I'm going to turn my head and cough, um, but we'll make it through it. I know, infamously, Scott has taught a build lesson from a chair when he was sick. And so when I wasn't feeling well earlier this week and Jenna was like, Matt, are you sure you can teach build? I'm like, Scott taught it from a chair. I can do this. <laughs> so, um, let me read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5, and six, or 5, 6, and 7. says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Anyone can come up and undertake ministry. They can sit down and dream up a program and say, okay, here's how we're going to share the gospel to people. But I think we desire more for ministry than just coming up with some templated thing that we want to do. Um, Look at verse 5 again. And this is one of my favorite phrases, maybe in all of scripture, where he says, just as the type of men we prove to be among you. The type of men we prove to be among you. Has anyone posted themselves at their worst on social media? Like you wake up in the morning and your skin's just crawling and your wife or roommate says something to you and you snap at them. And you're like, that was the perfect TikTok. I'm going to post that. (laughs) No, no, no one's done that. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my parents had some missionaries stay in our home, and um, and they were missionaries, I think, from South Africa. They lived with us for, I was probably 11, and it seemed like they lived with us for 15 years, but it was probably like a week. Actually, I think it was probably six weeks. Um, and, and they, like, it was a husband and wife and a young child, they fought most of the time, he was holed up in his room most of the time and they just were 
Like, as an 11-year-old, I'm like, these are some of the most selfish people I've ever met. And I don't remember a word of what they said. Um, I don't know what fruit came of their ministry. But whenever I think about this verse, I think of them. And I know that's, that, that illustration is near to my heart because it's such a memory. And it's so, like, fixated on my mind. But I don't think they realized what they were doing to their gospel ministry by not being the type of people that brings the, the gospel with a life that is transformed by it. Um, and so we need this passage for us to know what is our ministry going to look like. And, and before I get started into the actual list, think about your gospel ministry today. Where, where has God placed you as a missionary in this world? Uh, I own a coffee shop. I interact with people at a coffee shop regularly. Most of my gospel ministry comes out of that coffee shop. And so how can I have effective gospel ministry at Sagebrush? Um, Paul gives us some guidance here because he did have effective gospel ministry in Thessalonica. And so we want to emulate him. And so we have nine, um, I guess, what did I call them? Not character traits. They're nine just descriptions of effective gospel ministry. So let's get some context to Thessalonica. Paul is halfway through his second missionary journey. He started in present-day Turkey, strengthening the churches established in his first journey. And then he traveled to Philippi and preached the gospel and the first converts in Macedonia. He's persecuted in Philippi and quickly departs down the coast to Thessalonica. Paul spends three Sabbaths preaching the gospel to them. And the main thrust of his message was Christ the Messiah. Some Jews, but a good number of Gentiles believed. And so this is mostly a Gentile church. Jews who were hostile to the gospel stirred up the crowd making false claims about Paul and Paul fled to Berea. So there's a good chance that his time in Thessalonica was just those three weeks maybe five. I've heard some people say as much as three months um, I, I tend to believe that it was the shorter side of this and so when you think about what this gospel ministry was and, and just the effect of it, he proved to be men inside of three weeks like I said, the people that lived with us, they weren't there that long, and they proved to not be sound really quickly. Um, and so here we land, and he's writing a letter back to them saying, hey, I was there for a little bit, and I've heard about you guys, and I want to encourage you. And so starting in verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Verse 3 tells us that Paul gave Paul's great thanks to God for the Thessalonians and his thankfulness has three dimensions. Verse 2 is the form of his thankfulness, making mention of you in our prayers. And then verse 3, he has 
evidence motivating Paul's thankfulness. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And then in verse 4, he has the cause behind that evidence. Knowing, beloved of God, his choice of you. So we see at the end of verse 4 that Paul knows of God's electing love towards the Christians in Thessalonica. But how does he know this? If we keep reading, we'll find the answer. The answer is in front of us in verse 5 with the word for. Paul knows God's choice of them because of how the gospel came to them. The gospel came to them in three ways. In power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. One would normally think this refers to the gospel message. But I don't think that's it. I think these three descriptors actually describe how Paul and his traveling companions brought the gospel. So when we think about how we want to bring the gospel, we need to think about these things. In the end of verse 5, he says, Just so you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. It is we, Paul and his traveling companions, who were in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And because the gospel was spoken by this kind of a man, Paul was able to know God's choice of them. God's electing love is not independent of gospel proclamation. And God's electing love is not independent of gospel transformation in the people that proclaim it. Consider what the opposite of this would look like. The gospel message relies on some socially or culturally relevant message, and that's not a means to put God's choice on display. What we have here is a beautiful marriage between two things, God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility to preach the gospel. God is pleased to reveal his electing love when saints full of the Holy Spirit convinced of the power of the gospel, speak the gospel message biblically. So if you want to be used by the Lord, consider, am I a man who is in step with the Spirit as I undertake this ministry? And am I confident in the gospel's power to change lives? I think I forgot to preface that whole thing with, that was point one of God's electing love. Point two is that the gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Verse nine says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. The reputation of the Thessalonians was spreading rapidly throughout the entire Mediterranean region. And the testimony was all about two things the manner in which Paul was received when he brought the gospel to them, and how the Thessalonians repented from their sin. Notice that Paul wasn't content to simply be welcomed in peace by the Thessalonians. Biblical gospel ministry pursues a repentance, a turning away from sin to the God of the gospel. Dads, would you be content if your kids were pleasant to you? wanted you in their lives but never repented of their sins? Would you be content to have a relationship with your kids apart from a gospel-changed life? Of course not. 
course we want to see repentance. And so when we're interacting with non-believers, we need to strive to help them see that repentance is a significant piece of the gospel story. So if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider, does my message to others have as one of its foundations faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin? Number three, gospel ministry must result in a desire for God above all else. Look again at verse nine. He says, how you turn from God or to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues you from the wrath to come. Notice the two characteristics of their repentance. They serve a living and true God and they wait for Jesus. The life of a converted Christian aims at these two objectives. Serving God and waiting for Jesus. Notice what is not the aim of biblical repentance. It is not a better work situation, a better marriage situation. It is serving God and waiting for the return of Jesus. Now these things may come as a result of a life changed. Um, A genuine believer, though, prizes obedience to the Father and longs for Jesus' return. Why should a Christian long for Jesus' return? There's probably a hundred reasons. I have two here. When Jesus comes back, we'll be free from this body of sin. You know, we recently heard um, the God's transformation of man message. Um, we're in this mixed condition. It's not fun. We long for being free from a body of sin. And when Jesus comes back, we will finally have full and unhindered fellowship with Christ. The glimpses we get of that throughout our lives today are just just the slightest, like the faintest dim light of what unhindered worship of Christ will be. Which, I, whenever I think about this, I'm like, why do I not long for heaven more? Why do I let things of this world fill that void that only Christ can fill? I, I, I don't have a good answer for it, but I know I need to shepherd my heart to long for heaven and to see the riches of heaven and wait for Jesus. And my gospel message should include that. So if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider, does my message regularly aim for believers who look forward to Christ's return for his people? And do we remind ourselves of the realities of the next age? Do you know where in your Bible to go to learn about these truths and spend much time there? The fourth aspect of gospel ministry that we learn from Paul is effective gospel ministry doesn't lose courage 
in the face of opposition. Looking at chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. It, no one would have blamed Paul if he got there after being mistreated in Philippi and just saying, man, I could use a week off. Um, and, and yet he got there and immediately started preaching the gospel and got driven away within a month. Paul was mistreated and suffered in Philippi. We, we have no idea what that really feels like. I know there's times where I lack courage in my gospel proclamation. And I'm not about to be driven out of Chandler, Arizona. I might not even have someone say something negative to me. The gospel, a good biblical gospel proclamation comes with courage. Opposition is, is promised to us as part of our gospel ministry. It's the norm. Matthew 10.22 says, You will be hated by all because of my name. In Acts 20.20, 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable, solemnly testifying of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was consistently faithful to the gospel regardless of how he was treated. And, and we actually live in an age where this hostility is increasing. I think the day is here where there is some cost to sharing the gospel. I know I've had costs in my business um, of just standing for biblical, like just a biblical worldview. In the coffee shop world, it's a bunch of liberals. Um, may or may not be one-star reviews on Yelp about how I hate homosexuals. Pretty sure I don't, but standing up for what the gospel preaches about sexuality has has been costly. And so the day's here. Our culture's steadily aligning itself against the gospel. And this is our opportunity to have courage. It's, it's ironic that our culture and its aim to not discriminate against anyone openly and boldly discriminates against Christians. And so we can't dilute the gospel message in fear of what that response is going to be. It's such a blessing to have someone like Paul in Scripture as a shining example of what it means to stand up with courage and proclaim the gospel and see lives transformed by his preaching of the gospel so that we can know that we can follow in his footsteps and do the same thing. And that gets me to point number five. Our gospel proclamation must flow from the truth and with pure motives. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. 
Paul has been speaking of the character of the Thessalonians as well as himself and his traveling companions. But before he transitions into a broader discussion of the motivation behind the message, he addresses two things that must not be true about biblical gospel ministry. The ministry must not come from error or impurity, and it must not come by way of deceit. Error and impurity. Error here relates to a wrong position in biblical matters, holding positions that are contrary to Scripture. And impurity relates to impurity of motives or a desire to gain in a way that is sinful. And deceit relates to trickery. As if the person presented the gospel advertising all funds and games without hardship. I think that's called health and wealth. So if you're interested in a biblical gospel ministry, discard anything that compromises the integrity of the gospel and anything that places a carrot in front of somebody that isn't the truth of the gospel. The gospel is a beautiful message. It doesn't need to be enhanced by external things. Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is only compromised when perhaps a well-meaning brother tries to share it in a way that avoids the offensiveness of the message. So what are some examples of the offensive part of the gospel? I can't say myself. That's offensive to people. I, yeah, there's, uh, hell is a reality. It's offensive to people. Uh, but that's what they need to be saved from. So don't be afraid to offend with the details of what the gospel brings. That's what's going to save them. The sixth uh, description of effective gospel ministry is that gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. Picking up where we left off in verse 4, it says, But just as you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's such a good phrase. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from me, from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have been, we might have asserted our authority. Notice some of the the statements Paul makes about himself in this section. He says he was approved by God. And then he says, God examines my heart. He says, God witnesses. He says, we were apostles of Christ. Paul's view of his gospel ministry was something that has been tested and refined so that he can be entrusted with the gospel. 
in verse 4, he has been examined and tested. Paul has, God has examined Paul's heart, not just his deeds. We know from Bill that the heart is all of who a man is, and God examined all of Paul. Check out the tenses of these of a couple of these. He says he was approved by God. It's a past tense statement. And then he says God examines our hearts. That's a present tense statement. This is an examination that began in the past and continues into the present. God has been approving Paul all throughout his ministry. Labor and gospel ministry with a desire to please God and God alone. And this is a contrast to what he points out here. He says we don't have a pretext for greed and we did not seek glory from men. What destroys gospel ministries? Greed and glory from men. A man is in his mixed condition. So even on our best days, sin is crouching at our door. Our own flesh will lie to us and tell us that things we're doing are okay. We need to keep in front of us that our audience is God. God is our witness. Our gospel message must be uh, focused on that. And we must shepherd our heart away from greed and glory from men. So if you're going to be used by the Lord in any way, consider, am I considered first and foremost with God's approval of me? And then think and implement ways you can cultivate that concern in your life. How can you kill a fear of man and live with a fear of God? Number seven, gospel ministry values gentleness. Some of us really need to hear this one. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother cares tenderly for her own children. You know when that newborn baby is passed from one person to the other and the gentleness of that passing of a newborn from one person to the other, of making sure that the head is supported and and just making sure that this completely um, just dependent child um, doesn't get hurt in just a simple pass. Um, that's the gentleness described here. Now think about how do you emulate that in your gospel proclamation? At different points in Paul's ministry, he had to admonish other church leaders for their own hypocrisy. This was in Galatians 2. He had to rebuke believers in churches he established. All over Corinthians and Galatians 3. And he encouraged faint-hearted believers. 1 Thessalonians 4 is a great example of that. And so Paul's gospel ministry required him making good assessments of those to whom he was ministering and figuring out what they needed in those contexts and being patient with all of them. You need to be adept 
rebuke still come. This doesn't mean be gentle in every single context of every interaction you ever work with. Sometimes Paul needed to bring the hammer. Um, but if we look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Nope, that's not it. Five fourteen. I inverted things. He says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. He gives you a template of what tool to use in what context. Whether it's admonishing, encouraging, or helping. Um, depending on what you see in front of you. And he says, Be patient with everyone. Proper gospel ministry requires patience and gentleness. So are you the kind of man that knows how to be gentle? Ask God for help. Gentle saints wisely bring the right ministry help to the one who needs it. Number eight. Gospel ministry blends gospel proclamation and selfless love. Going back to chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not burden any of you, we, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This likely happened in three weeks. Gospel ministry isn't only about theological proclamation of truth. It does come in words. Remember what Paul said in verse 5. Our gospel did not only come to you in words, but in power in the Holy Spirit. The gospel comes in words. But the message needs to be patterned with selfless love. The message needs to have, like, if you're not the type of person that, if the way that you live your life ruins the message of what you say, God's not going to use you. You've got to live your life in a way that makes your message bring the authority it needs to. If I'm going to say, hey, you're struggling. I know that I know the solution to this. It's the gospel. And they look at you and go, well, you're not a man that lives like I want to emulate you. Well, you've just ruined your ability to share the gospel. So we have to shepherd our hearts towards holiness of living in a way that people look at us and go, man, I want what he's got. If you have a desire for ministry because you love sitting in a chair and reading God's word, but you don't necessarily want to be near people and have them look into your life, I think you should reevaluate what ministry really looks like. 
when Paul said, we proved, the men we proved to be among you. He was among them. He wasn't sitting there 19 hours a day reading and praying and then came out of his room and said, okay, let me preach something to you. He lived his life among the people. And we must live our lives among the people. Paul emphasizes this in these verses. He says, working day and night so as to not be a burden to you. This was an example of selfless love. And he said, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And this was gospel proclamation. Gospel ministry strives to be strong, strives to always be strong in both content and care. So if you want to be used by the Lord, consider these questions. Is your gospel ministry accompanied by a personal care for others? And do you pray for those you minister to? That one's uniquely convicting to me. Um, Several years ago, my wife and I were, were just trying to figure out how to bring gospel truths to my parents. And we would spend countless hours like debating the next interaction and how we would bring the truth of the gospel with them the next time in a different way. And then we'd come to them and it would be met with antagonism. And we'd go home and go, well, that didn't work. And that was terrible. And um, talk about the next interaction. And, um, and then finally, Jenna said to me, because most of my conviction of sin comes from this phrase, finally, Jenna said to me, um, Matt, how much do you pray for them? And I was like, oh, Man, not as much as we talk about sharing the gospel with them. Man, we need to be praying for those around us that we minister to. Each one of us has at least a few non-believers in our lives that we're consistently interacting with, that we could have opportunities to bring the gospel to. And I guarantee we're not praying for them as much as we should be. So pray for those you minister to. And then learn them. Do you know their life circumstances? Do you know where the gospel will uniquely fit into their life and strengthen them? And then ask those questions. Not just, how are you, how's it going, that gets met with a same old answer. But ask them something, some type of a question that will give them pause. Um, you know, we ask around here, how are you shepherding your heart? Can you imagine what that looks like if you ask a non-believer, how's your heart doing? Oh, they'll stop in their tracks and you get an opportunity to share. What do I mean by that? And all you're really doing is just caring for them. You want to know where, how their heart's doing. You have an idea if they're not a believer. But you don't know how the gospel is going to intersect with that. And give yourself an opportunity to. The last one, number nine. The last description of the effective gospel ministry is it requires excellent behavior from all. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you as believers. Just as you know how we 
We're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own child. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul reminds them of his godly behavior while he was with them. Devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly. When you think about your non-believing co-workers, can you go to them and say, you were witnesses to how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly I have lived among you. I remember I used to lead an IT department and um, and we were implementing like RFID scanners and they wouldn't work and they were it was a terrible project. And um, and I would program it in my office and then I'd have to go out into the warehouse to ch- test the Wi-Fi. And there was one day where... Um, and kind of to preface it, like I had an assistant guy who I was constantly preaching the gospel to. Um, and there was one day where I went out into the warehouse and went to test it and it didn't connect or didn't do whatever it was supposed to do. And I like threw the RFID scanner at the ground and walked back into my office. And, and Ethan comes into my office and was like, dude, man, I've never seen you lose your temper at all. And I was like, you're right. Please forgive me. Um, and that taught me two things. One, you need to seek forgiveness quickly. And thankfully, Ethan came to me and, and shared it. And two, um, by God's grace, that was the only time in five years of working together he'd ever seen me lose my temper. Um, and, and I think that was significant to him. And so when he saw it happen, he like came to care for me. And, um, yeah, so I still pray for Ethan. I don't think he's a believer. Um, Paul reminds them of his godly behavior while he was with them, being devout, upright, and blameless. True gospel ministry cares just as much about the behavior of the recipients of the gospel message, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Paul pursued godly behavior in the saints in Thessalonica in the very same way that a loving father would pursue it in his own son. Gospel ministry is concerned for how we live as believers in Christ, but it's also concerned for how those who we preach the gospel to will live. Excellent behavior is is desired for all. And it kind of ties back to the repentance is the goal. And so we have, we have nine descriptions here of effective gospel ministry. We need to be revealing God's electing love. We need to labor for nothing short of repentance. We must desire a result of a love for God above all else. We can't lose courage. We must have pure and true motives. We must recognize that God is our witness. We have to value gentleness with the way that we bring the gospel. We have to love them and proclaim the gospel. And we have to be aiming at excellent behavior. Um, and so, you know, there's a ton there. I don't think any of us are going to walk out of the room and go, okay, now I've got nine things I'm going to go live out differently. Um, but take one or two and really strive for those this week. Strive to implement those. Think about those things as you interact with people 
that don't hear the gospel, or even people that do, that need to grow in their love for God um, and apply these to our lives. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I think we'll be done. Lord God, thank you for such a sweet template. Lord, I love these two chapters to see what Paul's gospel ministry looked like in the church in Thessalonica. Lord, it is a sweet gift to us to be able to see, Lord. And so use us. Give us the power to be able to preach your word to those around us. Lord, help us to avoid excuses as to why to not preach the gospel, but to just preach the gospel with full conviction to those around us. Lord, we are here to see your name glorified on this earth. Any time that we shy away from that is a waste. Lord, there's a limited number of minutes before you return, and we are longing for that day. Um, but don't let us waste any of them. Lord, give us a desire and a boldness to bring the gospel powerfully to those around us, Lord. In your name, amen.